Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Better About Attack Boom. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the subject of the Takarazuka Review and how its massive popularity in the 70s influenced the eventual tag team boom of late 70s AJW. But before we get into that, I'm going to quickly talk about what a review is. Reviews have their origins in medieval France as a form of entertainment in any type of public gathering like a farmer's market or religious holidays and comedians would get on a stage and they would use topical discussion to create comedic shows or any type of entertainment for the masses. Modern reviews came about in the 19th century in France with the Cognard brothers popularizing the form at the Théâtre de la Porte Saint-Martin and also the Folie Bergère in the mid-19th century. Later, towards the 1890s, French reviews move away from the comedic sketches and singing into more of the sensual dancing that becomes really popular in the 20th century with acts like Josephine Baker. And at the same time, in England, at the Court Theatre in London, English reviews were more known for their costuming and lavish displays, but over the course of the early 20th century, those become more comedic-centric all the way into World War II. And in America at the same time, we see our first reviews happen in the 1890s as well. But the Roaring Twenties is what really sets off the review trend in America with the Ziegfeld Follies and George White's annual scandals. Before the massive popularity of feature-length films, reviews were a way for musicians, comedians, stage actors to become stars like the Gershwin brothers and the aforementioned Josephine Baker. And to bring this over to Japan, we actually need to go all the way back to Edo era in the 1600s. As mentioned in the S Relationship episode, Edo Japan was very class rigid, with the samurai being above all civilians, and farmers were the highest class of civilians, the bottom were your tradesmen and your craftsmen, and below that were the hinen, and that included kabuki actors and any other type of entertainer. Now, a common issue through the mid to late stages of Edo was due to Japan being in a time of peace because it's unified, it was seen as an issue that the samurai, because they weren't constantly at war, that the samurai were having more leisure time and they were using that leisure time to spend money on entertainment, like going to kabuki theater, buying toys, buying furniture, more and more lavish outfits. Many governments from the national to domain level sought ways to limit samurai spending because samurai were getting deeper and deeper into debt. In fact, it was seen as a necessity of being a samurai to put yourself into debt so that you could live the expected lifestyle. And one of these rules to help curb samurai spending was in 1629, women were banned from the kabuki stage as a form of anti-prostitution law. Ironically, kabuki was created by a woman and even after women were banned, they sought to bring boys to replace the women to play female roles because they had higher voices. But this was also seen as a threat to samurai because it was believed that the young boys would also be used as prostitutes. So eventually, you get to the point where kabuki actors or older men and you have onkata, which are actors who spend years training to play women. It's ironic that kabuki is one of the iconic images of Japanese culture when, for most of Edo, kabuki theater was hated by the Bakufu government and the shogunate. On the opposite side, you have the older no, and no theater managed to make itself the art form of the imperial court. 
So they had official government funding to help support their costuming and their stage performances. But they, too, had no women. It wouldn't be until 1890, decades into Meiji era, that women were allowed to legally perform on stage again. And Sarayako Kawakami made her debut in 1903 in a production of Othello, and she became the first woman to be referred to with the new term for actress, Jouyu. As I also mentioned in the episode about us relationships, during the Meiji era, we have an, an increasing amount of Western academia, art, science, industry is coming into Japan. Many early playwrights for the Shingeki art form took Western realism and modern themes that they felt weren't being presented in the outdated art styles of No and Kabuki. And early companies were made by Shoyu Subochi in his Bunge Kyokai and Kaoru Osanai's Jiyo Gekijo. Now the Jiyo Gekijo becomes a lightning rod for a lot of public criticism about actors that is embedded in popular discussion from the Edo era, and also in this clash of thought due to the westernization of Japan during modernization. The face of a lot of this criticism was actress Sumako Masui, and she started to get a lot of flack when she depicted the character Nora from the Norwegian play A Doll's House. A Doll's House is a play about a housewife, and it's a strong criticism about the lack of freedom that housewives would have in the affluent culture of Norway, and that also strung a chord with the new middle and upper classes that were growing in Japan. Now, at the end of the play, Nora leaves her husband and children to go live life with a new boyfriend, and that caused a lot of people with crowds and even feminists at the time. And a couple years later, Sumoko Masui also has a controversial performance as Salome in Oscar Wilde's play of the same name, 1914. Her dance of the Seven Veils was very controversial for how racy and sexual it was, and she also wore a very revealing outfit. And this again created a target for public discourse against the Shingeki movement. But the tipping point for a lot of people was when Sumaka Masui leaves her husband to then have a relationship with a fellow actor at the company, Hokitsu Shimamura. And when he dies, she then commits suicide. And so now you have this public opinion that these actresses and these Shingeki companies are sexually deviant in that actors, much like in Edo, are not normal people and that they're beneath the middle and upper classes. So around this same time, all the way in Kansai region, you have this very small hamlet called Takarazuka. And in 1910, the Mino Arima Electric Railway completes tracks from Takarazuka to Osaka. Now this small town is about 15 miles northwest of Osaka. And during the early Meiji era, Osaka is one of the biggest industrial cities in Japan. But it's also becoming heavily polluted with all the new industry. And it even gets nicknamed the Manchester of the Orient. Now the Mino Arima Electric Railway Company has stakes in the town of Takuzuka, but also in the growing town of Ikeda. Now, a senior official with the company Ichijo Kobayashi in 1911 decided to open a Vienna-style spa called Paradise to try and bring more people to the town on the electric railways built by Mino Arima. Now, Ichijo figured that if they can get more people to buy land off the Mino Arima electric railway company and build housing in Ikeda, then they would also take the railways from Ikeda to Takarazuka to go to the Paradise Spa. The only problem was in the 1890s, a hot spring was built in Takarazuka, 
and that had the reputation of being a place where men could go and get sexual favors. So toward the early years of the Paradise Spa, the patronage is only men because also in this time, mixed sex swimming is legal. So you have only men coming to the spa. But another factor as to why the Paradise Spa was not popular was that the indoor pools were not heated. So the cold water was only sought after during the hottest times of the summer. So during the spring, fall, and winter, people weren't going to the spa because the water wasn't heated. So in 1912, Kobayashi has this Paradise Spa. It doesn't have a lot of people coming in. And he needs to find a way to make people want to come to this small town using his company's railways. And he figured he would take inspiration from a department store who had large branches in Tokyo and Osaka called Misukochi Gofukuten. And what they would do to attract customers to their stores, they had an all-boys band. Also at this time, another Tokyo department store had an all-girls band called the Tokyo Shirokiya Girls Band. So in 1911, the Paradise Spa drains its pool and it sits empty for a couple years. In 1913, Ichijo Kobayashi decides to make an all-girls choir called the Takaruzuka Choir, and they take up residence in the newly created theater at the Paradise Spa. And with the early success of the Takaruzuka Choir, we see Takaruzuka's two main competitors crop up in Osaka and Tokyo, with the Osaka-based OSK Review, created in 1922 by film studio Shochiku, and their Tokyo sister company, the SKD Review, in 1928. So the first thing people notice when they see the Takarazuka review is that the casts are all women and they want to know why that is. And the simple reason is in the beginning is that you can get away with paying girls way less than boys. You also had a popular notion at the time that was very strongly believed in by Kobayashi that girls may not be able to master a skill like boys, but they can learn much faster and they're much more versatile in learning. To quote Kobayashi, he said that the only ones to excel in gourmet cuisine are men, but it takes a woman to whip up something adequate in an instant at home. So in his mind, in order to save the Paradise Spa, he needed something to work fast in order to bring in more patrons and a more diverse patronage than just working men. So he got 16 recruits in the middle of 1913, and he found an opera singer and composer, Hiroshi Ando, to train the girls. But it wasn't done in an instant because you had the reputation of the old Takarazuka Hot Spring being a place where men can go and get sexual favors done by geisha. He had to do a lot of work to convince families that their girls would be safe and that they wouldn't be at risk, which brings in some common themes throughout this project, and that's reputation, class, and the purity of young girls, shoujo. And so early on, we start to have the rules that you cannot date any boys while you're working with the Takaruzuka Choir. And if you wish to date men and eventually marry, you have to leave the group. So over the course of nine months, Hiroshi Ando is training this group of around 20 young girls to sing and play instruments. And these girls are learning Western instruments and not traditional Japanese instruments like the shamisen because... Geisha play traditional Japanese instruments when they're entertaining crowds. And Kobayashi can't afford to have this possible reputation of sex work attached to his Takarazuka choir. So during the course of nine months, 
Ando makes a suggestion of also training boys to be a part of the Takarazuka Choir, but Kobayashi shoots that down because if he brings in boys, he would lose the trust of all these girls' parents that he's keeping them safe from any possible danger. So Ando then suggests that the girls can play boys' parts and wear boys' clothing, and that's seen as a great idea and also a unique thing to bring to this new Takarazuka Choir. And eventually, in April of 1914, the Takarazuka Choir puts on their first performance of Don Bracco. In 1919, an official school is created called the Takarazuka Opera and Music School. And this school is where we get more of the unique name conventions from Takarazuka. The actresses are referred to as students, the directors and playwrights are called sensei, the rehearsal rooms are called classrooms, and this is another thing that can befuddle outsiders and foreign observers as to why there's such a strong school connection with these professionals. And that's because until the end of World War II, actors had to be licensed and for-profit theater groups were also taxed. So in a similar way as to Vince McMahon legally convincing people that the WWE is not a sport, it's a sports entertainment company. So Ichijo Kobayashi and Takarazuka legally define themselves as a non-profit theater company and all of their actresses are amateurs because because actresses had to put on their own makeup, they would make their own wigs, they would also not use full wigs, they would only use half wigs. So as long as they were amateurs, they wouldn't require licenses which cost money to acquire and as long as this is a non-profit theater group staffed by a bunch of amateurs, they wouldn't have to pay the taxes to run a for-profit. So for decades, you had the official school, which the only requirement was you had to complete your six years of compulsory education. And what was not known to the outside is that the students at this music school were getting paid just like the actresses were. And these students, like the actresses and the staff within the Takarazuka choir, would get bonuses. And one pre-war student said the bonus was enough to buy a plot of land and to build a house on. And as I mentioned before, the Mino Arima Electric Railway Company had land in Ikeda and Takarazuka, so it makes sense that you would pay these young women enough money that they could possibly bring their families from outside these towns into these local places, buy a plot of land, build a house, and become a part of the local community. And also, because they have a good reputation, bring this idea that these towns outside of Osaka are great places to raise a family and then you would hope that this great reputation spreads and you get more and more affluent families moving into your towns. And this was happening up until 1935 when a local paper wrote an expose saying that there's no way that Takarazuka Choir can be a nonprofit if everyone's getting paid well and they're also getting bonuses. So after 1935 the students are no longer getting paid and the actresses now get their notoriously low pay. Before the expose, it was reported that the actresses are getting paid as much as middle management in the railway company, and afterwards, they're getting paid about the same as a secretary would in your average office workspace in Tokyo. Now, fast forward to January 1940. There was an attempt to bring male students into the Takarazuka Music School, for a special four-year course, but they only lasted for a couple months because there was such fierce opposition by the actresses, the students, their parents, and the fans 
to the idea of men now joining Takarazuka. Because by this point, Takarazuka Review represented almost an ideal for girls' culture, similar to that of all girls' schools that developed the S relationships. Takarazuka was this almost fantasy world where girls were allowed to be with just other girls. There was no threat of men anywhere, and they could be themselves. And the actions of Takarazuka are also seen as ideal women. They're not interacting with men. They're staying amongst themselves. So you start to get a reputation that Takarazuka, if you send your daughter there, she'll become an ideal woman and the perfect marriage candidate once she leaves the company. Now, one of the people who's in fierce opposition to men being introduced to the Takarazuka Music School said that the idea of having, quote, wolf-like, tiger-like, disgusting, filthy males, end quote, training and living with the Takarazuka students was just a horrible idea. The second and last attempt to bring men into Takarazuka happened after World War II in December of 1945 with a three-year education course. The boys for this course had separate dormitories, but they shared singing classes and ballet classes with the female students, which by this you should know was very controversial and not liked by the student body, their parents, and the fans. Now, unlike last time, these boys were able to complete their three-year course, but they would only perform on stage with the female actresses at smaller theaters, and they didn't get to touch the stage at the Grand Theater. They were relegated to be an offstage choir to bring more tenor and baritone sound to the music. And with the unpopularity of men being a part of the Takarazuka experience, the men from this second course didn't stay in the company long as actors, but a couple of them did come back to the company to be playwrights, choreographers, and directors. In the post-war decades of the 50s, the first major threat to Takarazuka's popularity occurred with the rise of the post-war cinema movement in Japan. A lot of recent graduates from the music school get tempted by these movie contracts, and a lot of girls did indeed leave Takarazuka to go work in movies. This, coupled with the very low attendance numbers at the music school due to World War II, there were a couple years of doubt for Takarazuka and how they could rebound from the war period. But the debut of the first full-length musical, Miss You the Beautiful, also translated as Fair Lady in 1951, helped bring in enough music school applicants that they could eventually get back to the the three fully staffed troops like in the pre-war era. Another help to Takarazuka getting back their pre-war popularity is that in February 1953, they have their first telecast with national broadcaster NHK, and then they strike a deal with Osaka-based broadcaster KTV in 1958. And these telecasts help bring the image of Takarazuka outside of the Kansai region all the way to Tokyo and even up into Sendai. Over the course of the 60s, Takarazuka's popularity is still growing at a slow rate because ironically, whenever the economy is on an upswing in Japan, attendance numbers to Takarazuka goes down and application numbers to the music school also drop. And the 1960s was the first post-war decade that we saw true constant economic growth in Japan. And part of that is because the U.S. helped Japan's economy rebound after the war by having munitions and war machines built in Japan for the Korean conflict. But in the late 60s, they started to introduce Broadway scripts to the Takarazuka repertoire with Oklahoma in 1967 and West Side Story in 1968. 
Now, over the course of two years, all four of Takarazuka's troops put on a production of the Rosa Rasai. And with outside factors of the oil crisis making the economy slow down, and with the Rosa Rasai itself being such a popular shoujo manga, there is an explosion of popularity in live attendance and music school applications, and this becomes known as the Berabara boom. So over this two-year run, with not only performances at the Grand Theater in Takarazuka, but also national tours going through Tokyo and other surrounding areas, approximately one and a half million people see the Rosaraside musicals in person, and you also have the NHK telecasts broadcasting this play to the nation. The success of the Rosaraside musicals was so vast that all the women who played Lady Oscar become national celebrities, and this national stardom makes Sakurazuka create their current top star system for all of their troops. For example, today there are five active troops for Takarazuka, and then you have the veteran troop called Senka, but each troop has their top duo or top kanbi, and you have your top utkoyaku, which plays all your lead male roles, and your top muzumeyaku play all your lead female roles. So because of the success of Rosa Rasai, all of your inaugural top utkoyakus were former Lady Oscars. And not long after the Rosa Rasai, the same director for those musicals, Shinji Ueda, he also wrote scripts for Gone with the Wind, and Gone with the Wind is another success for Takarazuka, bringing in 1.3 million people. So during the 70s, we started to see a massive increase of applications to the music school, and more and more people are now aware of the Takarazuka review. The peak for Takarazuka's popularity happened in the 90s, because the economic bubble burst in 1989, there is an employment ice age in 1990, and we start to see record application numbers for the music school, because the way the Takarazuka Music School and Review work, if you get accepted to the music school, you train for two years, and if you're able to graduate, you're guaranteed to work with the company, and your initial contract with the review is kind of like a baseball contract with service time. As long as you follow your contractual obligations and the rules, that initial contract can guarantee you work for seven years. So if you can imagine in 1990, this employment ice age is going around the news, older siblings or older neighbors are in college and they're unable to get jobs once they graduate, and then your parents might be stuck at their job because no one's giving out promotions because it's such an uncertain time. The idea of Applying to a music school that might even be halfway across the country, that if you get in and if you graduate, you're guaranteed seven years of work. And even though it's not high pay, you're getting paid the equivalent of a secretary. Once you graduate, you can also live at the dormitories because the dormitory building has a wing for students and another wing to be used for active members of the company. And you have to pay only a small fee to live at the actress's dormitory. And if you live there, you can go to the restaurants within the Takarazuka Review compound. And then you don't have to pay to commute because you can simply walk across the grounds to make it to the rehearsal rooms. And if you do have to make it to Tokyo, because you're an employee with the Hankyu Corporation, you get discounts to use Hankyu Railways. It then becomes a very attractive idea that with all this uncertainty, if you can make it through two years of this school, you have seven years of your life guaranteed with income. And another attractive thing with the Takarazuka Review is everyone in a troupe gets roles. 
you're not going to be stuck sitting on the sideline because each troupe has multiple plays. You have your large productions for the Grand Theater, but you also have smaller productions used at all the various locations that Takarazuka has performances. And then once that initial seven-year contract is up, you can negotiate for more money, especially if you have a large fan club, you might then be considered a candidate to become a top star or at least become a prominent or at least become a prominent supporting actor. Another benefit to being a part of Takarazuka is you can go to classes and private lessons within the music school to better hone your craft and try to become a top star within your troupe. Now the biggest hurdle to becoming a Takarazuka star is of course to get entry into the music school. In the 90s when they had the record amount of applications, it would be about 46 girls to each available spot to get into the music school. One pre-war member of Takarazuka said that the competition to get into the music school was like that to get into the University of Tokyo, one of the premier universities in Japan. And I'm not going to get into the fan culture of Takarazuka in this podcast because that itself could be its own episode and that would start to stray away from the focus of the series which is the Joshi wrestling. But Takarazuka and AJW are similar in the fact that these are both very secretive, insulated worlds that while controlled by men, the faces of the company are the women who put on the performances and attract the audiences and are seen as a company themselves. So now it's the time where I truly connect Takarazuka with Joshi Wrestling. As I mentioned before, the Rosa Rosai musicals in the 70s were massively popular and they were broadcast nationally on NHK. One of NHK's main competitors for national broadcasting is Fuji Television. Now, Fuji Television in the mid-70s had a campaign to attract more mothers and children to their channel. And with the Rosa Rosai telecast happening on NHK, they knew that Takarazuka attracted the audience that they wanted to bring to their own channel, and they had to figure out a way to do that. And when they heard that Mak Fumiake was debuting for AJW, they contacted AJW and they got Mak Fumiake's debut match broadcast on Fuji Television. Now, Mak Fumiake is important because a couple years earlier, she was a runner-up in a national singing competition. So Mak Fumiake already had a level of national celebrity, and she also had a reputation that was positive. Meanwhile, at this time, Joshi Wrestling still had this negative connotation of being a sexual sideshow that would take place in nightclubs and cabaret halls, and also had this attachment as being a thing used as entertainment for the U.S. occupying forces just decades before. So this image of a younger pretty woman singing was similar to that of Takarazuka and Fuji TV wanting to bring in the audience of mothers and families like Takarazuka already has. They then start to pursue AJW to have a broadcasting deal and eventually in April 1975 AJW comes to terms with Fuji TV and they then start to regularly broadcast wrestling. Fast forward to 1976 and Mak Fumiake retires from wrestling and, and then begins her career as an actress. The ratings start to dip faster than Fuji TV wants, so someone from the entertainment department within Fuji Television approaches AJW and tells them that they need to create a tag team to emulate the image of Takarazuka, meaning they need someone that could be an Otokeyaku and someone that could be a Muzumeyaku. And with the tag team, not only could they emulate the popularity of the Takarazuka Review, they could also emulate the popularity of this new and rapidly rising pop duo called Pink Lady. 
And so after this meeting, AJW grabs together Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda and create the beauty pair. And while they're not instantly popular, in November 1976, they released their debut album. And by summer of 1977, Beauty Pair now has a massive and rabid fan base of young girls. And they got this fan base because they purposely took inspiration, the imagery, and the sounds of this established cultural institution, the Takarazuka Review, and this now massively popular pop duo, Pink Lady. So the Beauty Pair starts to release songs. And these songs become popular enough, they're now showing up on these music shows hosted on Fuji TV, and they're also now being side by side with Pink Lady. So, with Beauty Pair, AGW is able to hit the mark by attaching itself to girls' culture. And then you see them repeat this with Golden Pair and Queen Angels, who all also release songs. And then they have their opposing tag teams like Black Pair and White Pair. And this formula gets used again with the Crush Gals to even more success. But also, like the Talk Music Review, AJW has to keep the reputation of their talent in good light with the public. And that also means making sure that the talent aren't dating boys, they're not allowed to smoke or drink alcohol, and they also have to retire by age 26. Because it's seen that by age 26, if you wait too much longer, you'll then be too old and people won't... Because it's seen that by age 26, you are at the tail end of your prime years of marriage and childbearing. And these three main rules with AJW are always presented with such a mystique by so many people in the wrestling world, even back in the 90s, when it's simply not true. And it represents one of my many annoyances with how information gets disseminated within wrestling, that we have to rely on so few people, and many of these people don't understand Japanese culture at all. They view a lot of this with this A lot of them view it with the lens of Orientalism that perpetuates this mystique to Japanese wrestling and Japanese wrestling culture that simply doesn't exist. The reason why women had to retire in AGW at age 26 is because after 26, you'll become too old to be married. These girls weren't allowed to date boys because if you were dating boys as a teenager, that probably meant you were having sex. And if you lost your virginity, then your value as a woman in the patriarchal Japanese society is lost. And at that point, who would even want to marry you? So you then again ruin your chances of marriage. The reason why so many AJW wrestlers start so young is because there is this notion that women with jobs only have them temporarily because eventually they'll step down from employment to become good wives and wise mothers. A lot of the wrestlers from the 70s up until the 90s, they're not going to high school. They complete their compulsory education, which only goes up to middle school, and they're going straight to the training dojos. You have an entire generation of wrestlers with only middle school education, and then once you turn 26, you've lost your job, and so there are not many places that will hire a woman who doesn't have a high school education, and so it just further perpetuates that once you're done with wrestling, you need to become a wife, because if you don't, what's left for you to do? It becomes this thing that Despite how fans and the performers can see this as empowerment, none of these institutions were created with female empowerment in mind. It was just a way for a corporation or for a family of wrestling promoters to make money. And this isn't trying to say that you can't find joy and a sense of empowerment or any positivity from the Takazuka Review or from wrestling, because you can, and a lot do. I do as well. But it feels wrong to see women's wrestling in Japan as this 
wonderful feminist thing when it just wasn't. The reason why we have separate promotions for men and women is because a girl's purity was her only value to society. If her virginity was lost, her value was completely diminished and she would just be tossed away. And so you had to keep young girls away from boys because boys were just an inherent threat. And so throughout this research, reading all these books and just learning about Edo and early modern Japanese culture, you start to realize this picture of why we had so many all-women associations in Japan at this time. And it was all based around reputation. And a lot of it is, it's all based around reputation. And a lot of it also has to do with class. Because the origins of women's wrestling in Japan started with what's called guard belt wrestling, when two women, each with a guard belt, had to wrestle each other to get the opponent's guard belt off, there was a reputation that women's wrestling was just this sexual thing that happened at nightclubs run by CD underground club promoters. And it took someone, Makfumiake, with like a girl next door image to help bring the entire sport up into something that could be respected by the masses. The reason why now we see less women in the audiences of Joshi shows is because when the economy went bad and the music industry changed in the 90s and J-pop became a thing, the tried and true method of having tag team singing like the Takarazuka Review didn't work anymore, despite the fact that the Takarazuka Review was boasting record numbers throughout the 90s. And the promoter's idea of saving the industry was to go back to the early days of the 50s and 40s and use and use sexual attraction as a way to bring in money through merchandise like Grover and photos. And I'm gonna end this note on a call out. A man who's been writing about wrestling since the 90s, he had a blog post about the beauty pair, which is filled with misinformation and dismissal of this female audience. And the, the first time I read this, I just got mad because again, the misinformation and the hubris with which he wrote about beauty pair. It felt like a man was looking at something that teen girls adored and was just dismissing it as, oh, I guess I can understand why you guys like this. And also, again, call out post. The beauty pair movie is not a movie about Jackie Sato. It's about beauty pair. It explains in kayfabe how the beauty pair got to AJW and formed as a tag team and why black pair was trying to beat up beauty pair. And also, that chick in that movie is Mariko Akagi, who they name as Queen of the Ring. She is one of the best wrestlers at this time in AJW. And in the movie, if you actually paid attention, she is the one that gets Jackie Sato to join AJW. So I'm going to end this episode on two things. One is the next couple episodes will be discussing the actual wrestling. Now that we have laid the groundwork into why wrestling in the late 70s became what it was for HAW. Number two is I'm, I've been sick of all the bullshit that all these, I'm gonna make the wild assumption, all these cis men make about why these teams and these wrestlers are so popular with young women in the 70s and 80s in HAW. And all of this just non-information and not no one investigating why this phenomenon happened. You can watch all the matches you want and have all this granular knowledge of the match structure and the times and all this bullshit. What good is it to watch all this wrestling if you're going to willingly ignore the cultural context of the wrestling itself? But it's like ignoring that BJW has all this fascist imagery of Imperial Japan and coincidentally not booking anyone who's not ethnically Japanese. 
BJW took years to even book Violento Jack despite his massive popularity with Freedoms because, shocker, the promotion with the fascist imagery is racist. Just like how so many people in this Joshi wrestling bubble never approached the question of why did AJW have a retirement age rule? Why did they have rules against smoking, drinking, and dating? Shocker, it's about sexism. Why is Rossi Ogawa just constantly allowed to be around young women? It's sexism. He is a product of the patriarchal system of Japan that allows adult men to control the lives of young women and girls. Wrestling is informed by the culture it lives in, and the fact that so many people willingly ignore that bothers me.